In April of 1915, Adolphe Pigua hunkered down behind the meager windscreen of his Moraine Saunier two-seater to hide from the worst of the freezing air. Spring may have been dawning in France, but it always felt like a winter at altitude. Pigua and his gunner, Private Lorendu, flew towards the increasingly complex scar of trenches that marked the Western Front. Already with four confirmed kills, Pigua was one of the first pilots to graduate from observer to fighter and looking to add to that tally. Spotting a German aviotic and knowing it would be no easy kill, Pigua accepted the challenge and began the duel. It would be a fight to the death and a fight in the race to become the world's first fighter ace. I'm Brass. And I'm Mr. Chow. And we fly the F-15C single-seat air superiority fighter. But really, we're just average fighter pilots. So luckily, this podcast is not about us. It's about the truly extraordinary fighter pilots who've come before us. Welcome to Fight History. All right, guys, welcome back to Fight History, where this week we're going to be covering Adolf Pigua and... It may be transparent to you, but this is the third time Mr. Chow and I have covered Adolf Piqua. Version control can be um, difficult at times. Yeah, save versus save as is difficult. Yeah, so we're going to work on that. But luckily for you guys, we're just very well rehearsed now, or should be well rehearsed for Mr. Adolf Piqua, uh, which is good because before this, I'd actually never heard of him. Mr. Chow, have you ever heard of Piqua? Uh, no, not until we started researching for this podcast. Yeah, it's, you would think that two guys who specialize in air-to-air combat may have heard of the world's first fighter ace, but he's not very well known in our community, I'd say. Yeah, he's not even in uh, Lords of the Sky by Dan Hampton, right? He's yeah. not even mentioned in there. Which, if you've never read that book and you're interested in fighter uh, aviation, it's probably the best all-encompassing book that covers both pilots and the equipment and how, how it progressed throughout the years. Which is similar to what we're doing, honestly, on this podcast, but we're doing a better, I think, or deeper dive on the individuals who are out there. And point in fact, Adolf Pigua is not in the book. But I can tell you who has heard of Adolf Pigua. Who's that? And that's Pigua Watches. The Pigua Watch Collection pays homage to the famous French aviator Adolf Pigua. The early 1900s and the advent of aviation heralded a new type of timepiece. Fashioned from pocket watches, adorned with Art Deco numerals and housing cathedral-style hands, these timepieces took on an aesthetic and language of pilot watch design that is still honored and coveted today. And that's why I always have my Adolf Pigua watch whenever I'm flying the Mighty Mighty Eagle. Uh, now, we are legally obligated to tell you that we're not actually sponsored by Pequod Watches. Yeah, we just want to kind of show the sponsors out there, though, what we've got. You know what I mean? Yeah, that could be you, Pequod Watches. It's an audition for sponsorship. Exactly. Um, but anyways, uh, Mr. Adolf Pequod, uh like uh, our first episode, Roland Garros, he is a Frenchman, uh, if you couldn't get it from the name. And they both look like your typical fighter pilots. Uh, you know, they are pictures of both of them. They both kind of... Small, wiry guys with these big handlebar mustaches, so they definitely uh, fit the role of what you would think of as a World War One fighter pilot. Um, but 
Although we don't have as much on Adolf Piqua as we did on Roland Garros, we can tell you he was born in the French Empire in 1889. He joined the French Army in 1907, and he served in North Africa. And there was actually an incident in North Africa, in Madagascar, um, before the war, where a German boat basically uh, went into towards a French harbor, and there was this tense standoff and they thought actually the war might kick off because of this situation because the Germans were trying to expand into Africa. It didn't happen um, but he was in Africa kind of while that's happening. He got his first airplane ride in 1911 was discharged in 1913 and then he ends up flying with the Blairow Flight School and that's the same type of airplane that Roland Garros flew uh, primarily so he's kind of doing he's a similar to the Blario monoplane, right? Yeah, the Blario monoplane, the one that crossed the first plane across the English Channel. Uh, something that's kind of interesting here, too, is um, you know, although the airplane was invented in the United States, the Wright brothers got into this really bad legislative battle um, over patent law. Basically, they had patented wing warping and they were trying to prevent any other American manufacturers to use that. And that's like the old school aileron, how you roll the airplane. Um, but the French aren't big on patent law, so they just stole it. And that's why they got so farther ahead than the U.S. initially is because they just took the Wright brothers' invention, used it themselves, and didn't pay them any royalties, which is fine. I mean, it was good for aviation. Uh, China does that now. China does that a lot now. Uh, it's probably not as good when China does it, but, um, yeah, the French were way ahead, basically, at this time uh, than the U.S. because they just didn't care about the patent law. Uh but it's good for our friend Adolf Piguot, who gets to start flying that Blairo monoplane, and he becomes a test pilot uh, for Blairo. And one of the first big tests he has is he's supposed to be the first guy to test a parachute. And so he's in a single-seat plane. They want him to just jump out. The plane is then going to crash, and he's going to be the first guy to test a parachute. I'm not sure I would have signed up for that test. Um I think I'll let someone else get the chow hall named after them when the parachute doesn't open. I, I think it says something, though, about the type of person that ends up flying airplanes in general at this time. It was a much smaller subset of society that became pilots at this time. There wasn't any sort of uh, pathway to becoming a pilot, any established pathway anyways. Uh, and so I think it's, there's a certain type of person who's extremely adventurous that becomes a pilot in... 1913 right yeah you definitely have to have that thirst for adventure i don't know if the deal was hey dude we'll pay for your pilot training and then you just have to jump out of the plane but um either way adolf pigua does the test uh luckily for him the parachute opens the test goes swimmingly and as he's under the parachute kind of descending to the ground he looks at his plane which is still flying uh, and it, the plan was it was just going to crash and what he sees is the nose kind of tips over picks up some speed and then the plane pitches up when it has a little bit more airspeed and it almost does a loop and no one had done a loop yet at this point in time and as he's watching this thing happen he goes i think i can fly a loop in this airplane and so uh on september 21st uh against the wishes of blaireau pigua flew a loop which is widely publicized at the time to be the first loop ever flown and at this time it's it's not easy to fly a loop it seems like it might be the most easy thing in the world to just pull back on the stick and then the plane goes up 
But I mean, these things are basically kites with wings and like a lawnmower engine. It's not an easy thing to get that plane to have enough energy to go up over the top. Um, Mr. Shab, have you ever been like in a tail slide or anything before? Yeah, you know, actually, just the other day, I I came back and watched my tapes because I had a incident where I was about forty five degrees nose high. I was going for a gunshot in the vertical, and uh, I got down to about twenty five knots. <laughs> Um, it was very uncomfortable. Yeah, 25 knots in a 50,000-pound airplane is not where you want to be. It's not where you want to be in any airplane uh, when you're pointing up. Because essentially, if you if you don't have enough airspeed to go up over the top and you get the plane pointed pure vertical, it'll just the wings won't have enough lift to have it keep coming around so that you get the nose back down. And the plane can just slide backwards through the air and planes nowadays are stable enough that normally the nose will flop back over but i'm guessing in 1913 the monoplane there might not have been so literally if you don't get the plane up over the top it could have been fatal for him yeah i think it's also the the planes are not necessarily designed well enough not just that they're going to right themselves but also if you start sliding backwards in some of these planes they might even break apart because they're not designed to have air flowing across the surfaces in that direction yeah exactly and then this is also how you can potentially once the plane gets energy going back down but not coordinated energy you can get into a spin as well so uh depending on the airplane that could be uh worse or somewhat better but it's never good uh so but for Pigua, he figured out how to do that. Now, what he didn't realize is that a Russian aviator, Peter Nesterov, had flown a loop actually a couple weeks earlier. But because it's not publicized, no one knows about it until you know today because there was, there was some documentation. And so ironically, even though it was a Russian who flew the first loop, uh, Moscow... or Tsar Nicholas, right? Tsar Nicholas I, yeah. He invites... Pigua rather than Peter Nesterov to come to Moscow and to perform the loop. And so that's what Pigua does. And he, he goes, he flies the loop. He does an air show essentially. And then he teaches some Russian aviators how to fly. And this kicks off a tour that uh, Pigua goes on for the next couple of years. He goes all around Europe and he teaches people how to fly, how to fly the loop. He does these air shows and he puts these air shows on for some pretty big names that we're going to be talking about later on. One is Oswald Bolka. So he actually goes to Germany and he does loops to music quite literally to these German pilots. And then he actually teaches some of them how to fly, uh, which may come back when we get a little bit later on in the war. Uh, he doesn't teach Bolka how to fly, but Bolka watches him do the loop and says it's the most amazing thing ever. And he writes about it actually to his family. And spoiler here, Bolka is maybe considered to be the father of modern air combat. So. Yes, and we're going to be doing an episode on him later on. And then he also goes to England, and he flies uh, the loop for the British ace James McCudden, who also writes about it. So Pequa is pretty well known before the war because of this big tour that he goes on. Um, James McCudden, who's not an ace at this time, obviously. <laughs> not an ace at the time. Right, right. There is no such thing as an ace at this time. There's been no air combat at this time. But James McCudden, the future British ace, also sees him um, loop the loop, as they say. But Pigua's big tour of Europe is going to come to an end in July and August of 1914. Because in June of 1914, Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie are shot in Sarajevo. And 
I've heard about Franz Ferdinand. I know that song "Take Me Out" by Franz Ferdinand came out in like I don't know. It's a good one. It's a good yeah, one. That's a it's a good college song for me. <clears throat> yeah, but you know he's just kind of one of the tens of millions of people who die in, in World War One, and sometimes he gets lost as a statistic, like everyone else does. It reminds me of that um, that quote: "A million deaths is is a statistic; one is a tragedy." Something along those lines. I may have gotten that reversed um, on the order, but I have his last words here. And when I see his last words, it kind of like makes it real to me. So as he's dying with his wife in Sarajevo, he says, Sophie, Sophie, don't die, live for our children. And then when people are trying to help him, he's saying it's nothing, it's nothing, even though he's bleeding to death. And then he, he dies right after that. Sophie dies. Uh, and that's kind of what kickstarts world war one. But it's just, it makes it so much more personal when you go, oh, yeah, it's just a, this is a man who's just shot with his wife when he was kind of out in the town. And the reason why uh, the death of Franz Ferdinand was so important is that Franz Ferdinand was basically the heir to the throne to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that empire at, at this time basically has, I think it's 11 different nationalities encompassed in it, as what you would call it today. It's the Austrians, obviously Hungarians. Uh, the uh, people from the Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the most important ones there is the Serbs. So Serbia was its own country at this time, but part of like modern-day Serbia was still encompassed in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And uh, there were you know, cultural Slavs living in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so obviously they're trying to basically break away, and there's this huge rise of nationalism. And across Europe at this time, it would have been, well, put it this way, it's a lot easier to take a geography test in 1914 than it is in 2023, right? There are so many countries that exist in Europe today that didn't exist in 1914, and these countries are trying to basically fight for their independence. You know, Poland is not a country in 1914. Lithuania, Latvia, uh, you know, Czech Republic, Slovakia, those are not countries. They're all encompassed in these large empires, and there's a lot of tension to break away. And when uh, Franz Ferdinand is assassinated. Basically, Russia, who's already allied with France, uh, they're backing Serbia. And then uh, Germany is backing the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so because of the assassination, about a month after the death of Franz Ferdinand, Austro-Hungary uh, declares war on Serbia. And then all of the dominoes start to fall, right? And then Russia declares war on Austria-Hungary, uh, Austria-Hungary, and then you know you can see from there. Then Germany's involved, France is involved, and World War One starts basically. But one thing that I think is interesting is prior to the war, when the um, when the alliances are being formed, and later on in the war when people are vying for America's uh, interest in the war, America's support in the war, the propaganda from the French against the Germans was that the Germans are sort of the, they're the ones who took down Rome, right? These are the barbarians who destroyed civilization 1500 years ago, and they're the barbarians who are going to destroy civilization now. They're still those people. And they're even a little bit of the Vikings. You know, we talk about the Vikings being Saxons at times. Saxons are from the upper part of Germany when uh, and, and Denmark, when we were in Germany over the summer, 
we were in Hamburg, and it's only a three-hour train ride to uh, Copenhagen, right? So, I mean, it's right there. These are the Vikings. These are the barbarians. I've been reading Caesar's Gallic Wars a little bit, and even then he talks about these barbarians crossing the Rhine to attack the French. They're, they're having battles at the Somme. It's almost like a little preview of World War One, and that's what the French use as their propaganda. Now, my great-grandfather fought in World War One, and everyone knows it's called the Great War back in the day, but his medals say the Great War for Civilization, right? It's not just the Great War. It's the Great War for Civilization, and that's what's being fought at the time, or at least that's the idea. Now, there's some truth to that, and obviously a lot of that's false. The Germans weren't barbarians, and we'll get into that when we cover Maximilian and Oswald Bolka. But that is sort of the stage before the Schlieffen plan, which we talked about with Ron Garros, starts to be enacted, and the Germans come pouring over the French border. Yeah, I mean, there's so, so there's some pretty deep-rooted uh, resentment between the sides here. Uh, it's not something that's new. No, and actually they're called hereditary enemies at the time as well. The French and German are hereditary enemies. It goes back to the time before the Romans. That Rhine was sort of the barrier between... And it's funny, they even talk about the Germans being like larger. And I, I'm, when I say they, I mean like the Romans. And when they went into the Gaul, to Gaul and went to Germany, they're like, these guys across the Rhine are big and very powerful and they wear animal skins and they're sort of crazy looking. And, you know, the people on the west part of the Rhine, the French are a little bit more refined. They weren't as refined as the Romans, obviously, at the time. But um, even back then, that was how the stage was set. And that is how the stage is set in 1914, when again the Germans cross the Rhine uh, through Belgium and then attack France. And like most Frenchmen, whether they wanted to or not, Adolf Piquois finds himself in this war now, even though he was just teaching Germans how to fly. Um, but it should be noted that when we talk about these fighter planes, they're not really weapons of war in 1914. We talked about it with with Roland Garros a little bit and that evolution, but just to kind of highlight again, they're incredibly primitive airplanes. Uh, they're open cockpit. They usually have like 80 horsepower engines. Um, and they're primarily being, primarily being used the same way that balloons were, were used. Yeah, they're right? just for observation initially. And those engines were usually rotary engines. So the entire engine spins, which is ridiculous. So and I'm, not, I'm, I'm saying that correctly. It's not a radial engine, which a lot of people think about where the cylinders are arranged in a circle. It, it's a rotary engine where the, the cylinders are arranged in a circle, but the entire engine spins and the crankshaft basically remains stationary. And so they had this huge amount of torque from a spinning engine. And most of those engines actually didn't even have a throttle. So it was on or off. Um, and you can imagine all the problems that that causes. Uh, and they're usually not armed. And so uh, at least not in the beginning. Uh, we talked about, you know, Roland Garros's deflector plates and everything um, like that. That's going to come a little bit later on uh, in about 1916. So Pigua starts flying uh, without any of that. He's flying just as, as an observer. Eventually he gets uh, someone in the back seat where he is now flying an observer and a gunner. And he's able to start taking out uh, some of these other German airplanes. And there's some pretty creative stories early on of guys uh, improvising weapons with airplanes, right? Like there's a yeah. Let's let's bring along uh, a handful of bricks and throw them at other aircraft. Or... Yeah, I've, and I think it actually worked. 
I've tried that before in my BFM, throwing my you know electronic flight bag down an intake. It never seems to work for me, but it did work for some of these guys in World War One. Um, my favorite one is one uh, French pilot. He uh, towed a grappling hook to see if he could snag himself a Hun. Uh, I don't think that one worked. Uh, we talked about Roland Garros's deflector plates. Shooting a you know machine gun into your own propeller was actually the best idea at the time. So you can imagine some, what some of the bad ideas were. But for Pigua, he settles in on just having a backseater, essentially, tr- with a machine gun, try to shoot down these other planes. It still required a whole lot of good flying from him. He had to fly basically alongside these other airplanes or even get in front of them, which is the opposite of what you'd expect for most air-to-air engagements. You know, nowadays you want to, if you're attacking an airplane, you want to be behind that airplane. He had to sometimes fly in front of them so his gunner could have a shot, which is not necessarily what you want to do. But um, before we even get into exactly how he starts getting his kills, we have mentioned that the French were farther ahead than the Germans at the start of the war. Uh, But they're actually a whole lot farther ahead, both in terms of number of airplanes and organizations. So France has about 260 airplanes at the start of the war, and they're already organized in their own escadrilles or squadrons. So they had about 21 squadrons. The Germans only have about 45 airplanes at the start of the war, and they're not really organized very well. They're just kind of attached to the army units, and they'll go fly a couple observation missions and come back. So the French are definitely um, farther along with the conception of the airplane as an instrument of war at this point. How's America doing at this time? Yeah, we have about five airplanes. And that's what I was saying, that the Wright brothers, although obviously they invented the airplane, they also brought the development of the airplane to kind of a screeching halt for years afterwards. And this is about 10 years, 11 years after the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk. There, there was kind of the sense from the from the U.S. military at the time that airplanes are a cool party trick, but didn't really have any military application. Exactly. But Pigua proves that uh, wrong, along with other fighter pilots. Uh, and he starts getting his first kills in two-seaters in February of 1916. And so he's kind of developing a tactic as a two-seater. Like I said, he's pulling alongside um, the German observation planes and letting his gunner, Lorendu, actually do the shooting. And turns out Lorendu was a pretty good shot, so kind of splitting this um, 50-50 maybe on the credit for these kills. Uh, But Private Lorendu is the one operating the gun. And when we talk about kills, just again highlighting, we're not necessarily talking about killing the inhabitants of the other plane we're talking about shooting down that airplane and even though planes were way cheaper back then they than they are now they're still they were still expensive they still take a ton of time to make and you want to take that weapon of war away from the enemy right um and so that's what they're doing and in early by early april pigua has four kills and he's kind of leading the way here on uh killing the germans and like we said in the beginning, on April 18th, he goes looking for his fifth. So Pigua and Lorendu find a German aviotic, which is a two-seat um, observation plane, though at this point some were armed as well. And maybe it's worth pausing here and just talking about how, you know, how did they get the idea that it was important to shoot down these other aircraft, right? It was yeah. the initially, okay, we've got, we've got these observation planes. We don't really know how to use them. Uh, but like the the miracle of the Marne, that was kind of the first case where 
observation planes started to prove their worth when they when the this is when the French plane recognizes the gap in the German forces and they're able to direct the infantry from there. And I and I think that there's a the ground commanders are starting to see that these airplanes and their observations that are very timely, they can provide this timely intel that can be used advantageously for directing artillery as well as for troop movements on the ground. And so now it's like, well, how do we deny the enemy the ability to use these observation planes? And now this is why we want to shoot down to other planes. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, there's a couple other important points, too, that are specific to World War One. One of them is how important artillery was in World War One. There was all these innovations in artillery. They could shoot farther. They had, like, zero recoil so they could stay on target more. And artillery is devastating most troops in World War One. I. I th- it's something like 50%. Don't quote me on that one. We'll, we'll have... We need to get Joe Rogan's Jamie in here so we can look it up, all our facts for us. But it's something like 50% of all the um, casualties from World War One are from artillery. So spotting for artillery is incredibly, incredibly important. And the other thing that becomes very difficult in World War One is traditional reconnaissance because you have a trench going from the Alps to the English Channel. You can't get, like, traditionally cavalry did a lot of, uh, you know, reconnaissance based off the fact that they could move very quickly you can't get them across the line to go you know scout and then come back there's none of that happening so you had to have an airplane to cross the lines to see what was happening on the other side of the trenches and both sides realize how important this is and they both realize how important it is to deny it to the enemy and so that's why these pilots like pigua start crossing the lines just to shoot down other planes and uh, returning to April 18th, that's what he found. He found a German observer on his side of the lines, um, you know, spotting for artillery, writing down, you know, the organization of the trenches, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes to attack. Um, most German planes had armed themselves at this point. So it, it's a pretty f- fairly even fight. You have to basically almost make yourself, uh, put yourself in a position where they can shoot you so you can shoot them since you have to pull alongside of that plane, unlike in a traditional dogfight where if you get on the band at six o'clock, he can't do much about it. Um, but what's incredible by at least one account, uh, as he pulls alongside, Lorendu shoots and his gun jams after only one shot. And so he's starting to reload and, you know, clear the jam, but then he sees the aviotic just pitch over and dive into the earth because he shot the pilot with his one round, which is an incredible feat, right? One of those things you'll never be able to... Better be lucky than good. Better be lucky than good. Aerial gunnery is incredibly difficult in the best of times. You're going... Even then, they're going, you know, 90 miles an hour. Your target's going 90 miles an hour. There's all this wind resistance and drag, and you're shooting... You have to lead him at 90 miles an hour. So to shoot the pilot fatally with one shot was pretty incredible. And so nowadays we've got a lot of things helping us with aerial gunnery, uh, one of those being radar. Uh, so if you have a radar lock on the guy that you are trying to gun, uh, then now you have a ranged readout, and you also have a, uh, a pipper, uh, which basically tells you where your bullets are going to impact at the range of your radar lock. And so if you put that on the target uh, then, and you squeeze the trigger, then ostensibly that's where the bullets are going to go. Um, they didn't have any of that, and, it, and 
Additionally, I don't think they had the cyclic rate on their machine guns that we have today. We were shooting about uh, but, 60 to 80 rounds well, per it, second. Yeah, it's either 60 or 100 rounds per second, usually. Um, so you can imagine 100 rounds per second. We're throwing a whole lot of lead out in you know one piece of sky at a time. And even with that, it's tough to get a track. You know what I mean? Right. With all of the stuff that we have today, with a bigger airplane too, uh, so you're shooting a bigger airplane. It's hard to get like a kill during our, you know, dogfighting type of uh, missions that we go out. All training right now, but um, all those missions, it's hard to get a kill. It is funny though. There's such time dilation. If you're in a fighter jet, you've got a fighter jet in your sights. You're squeezing the trigger. For me, sometimes I feel like, and you have a, you have to get a certain amount of um, basically bullets on the target, and it'll show you kind of where they show up. It's called radar. Uh, rounds at target range. You have to get a certain amount of radar on your target in order to ca- for it to count as a kill. And I I almost never call it airborne because airborne I have such a time dilation where I I'm seeing every little minute thing during that trigger squeeze that sometimes I'm like, dude, I just shot him for ten seconds straight and it's half a second in reality. Um, turns out for pl- private Lorendu, all he needed was half a second, uh, so to speak. And when Private Lorendu and Adolf Pigua kill that aviotic. Uh, it is their fifth kill, which later on would be determined to be the cutoff to become a fighter ace. Five kills. At the time, it actually wasn't established yet because he was the first one to do it. No one had thought of it beforehand. Um, but this is what's going to kind of cement him and his legacy as the first fighter ace is this kill on uh, April 18th. How do, how, do you, how do you think they came about to the number of five kills to be an ace? I have no idea. I think it just sounded about right. The British and Germans actually established it at 10 originally. Um, and nowadays, it w- would almost be a better... You have a better case to, to make it less than that because there's so many... Or there's such less airplanes out there, right? Where in World War One there was a whole lot of airplanes eventually. But back then... Um, you know, there were still quite a few. So I don't know. It's tough to decide exactly what the number should be, but I don't think we'll ever get away from five at this point. It's been around for too long. I'm just imagining a bunch of guys with like between five and 10 kills in a bar someplace deciding like, you know, yeah, let's, let's make the cutoff five. That's a, that's good. We'll all be aces. Sounds exactly. Good. Well, I wish I was at that bar. Cutoff zero. I'm in. Um, Roland Garros kind of gets gypped on this big time. He has four confirmed kills and one unconfirmed, which is the other part of this. These kills have to be confirmed. So you had to have a neutral observer to see this, and or you can match up records after the war and be like, okay, you you said you shot someone down, uh, you know, in this spot on this day. The Germans reported an airplane missing on that spot that day. You could you could pair it up that way, but the, the kills do have to be confirmed and different. Um, nationalities were better or worse at confirming those but either way he he's going down as the guy the pilot who gets the first five kills and the germans were taking notice um uh and they they definitely wanted to go get adolf pigua who was famous before the war and is now has five kills and uh, pigua is famously quoted saying the germans have sworn to have my blood but it will cost them dear how come no one wants my blood, man? That would be so sick, you know? Um, I just want my enemies. I just want to strike fear in the hearts of my enemies. Do you know what I mean? I don't think I've ever You're not, you're not asking for much, you know? No. 
I mean, is, is that too much for a guy to ask? But uh, for our friend Adolf Piguois, in by July, he has left Private Lorendu behind because he has now started flying the Newport 10 uh, sesquiplane, which is sort of a wing and a half. It's kind of moving into the biplane era. And this is now a single seater. And because the French still haven't figured out the interrupter gear, and because he doesn't want to shoot off his own propeller and shoot into his own propeller, most pilots are now mounting an over-the-wing machine gun. So it shoots directly over the propeller. But you can imagine some of the problems with this. If he had to reload or clear jams, which was pretty common, he had to fly the airplane like with his knees while standing up, not strapped in to an open cockpit plane, and then take like a can of ammo over his head and like put it into a machine gun while in a engagement with another airplane. A little bit uncomfortable there, you can imagine. Um, but he starts flying this, uh, and on July 11th, he gets his first kill as a single-seat fighter. He shoots down another aviotic observation plane, and he continue, continues to do this, but on August 28th, he shot down himself after a German observer scores a lucky hit on his engine. Now, he's fine. He makes a forced landing, and this actually gets them the citation of a Chevalier de la Legion of Honor. I think I'm, my French is really improving. I think that sounded really good. Um, and uh, his citation says, Accumulating the daily traits of courage and audacity, he has attacked heavily armed planes alone countless times. On August 28, 1915, his plane was riddled by bullets and he was forced to land and immediately took every means to save his airplane in spite of German fire. Um, one thing that I think is funny here is he's shooting down all these planes. He gets no credit. He gets shot down, and all of a sudden, he's a knight of France. This is the same award that uh, Roland Garros got for crossing the Mediterranean. I think there's kind of something to that. I mean, I've I've heard that in the modern-day Air Force of like, oh, yeah, if you eject, then you're guaranteed to, to make 06 or full bird colonel. Um, yeah. and, and if you look at, like, there's a pretty good number of people that have ejected uh, that are generals in the Air Force. Maybe it just reminds people that we've got skin in the game, even in training. Like, you still have skin in the game when you step into a fighter jet. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. It is kind of funny, though. Maybe it's now because you're more likely to eject and never shoot anyone down because there's so little air-to-air combat. Um, there's there's yeah. some street cred that comes with it. Yeah, I guess if my career starts going downhill, I'll have to find a reason to eject, and then that'll be, like, right back up. Yeah, we'll make sure to not have a recording of that. Yeah. God, I... If I ever do have to reject for a legitimate reason and then this pops up, I'm probably going to get fired. But I think that's worth it for the podcast, though. Don't you? Yeah, I don't know. Well, it was worth it for Adolf Piquot, at least, to get shot down. He becomes a knight of honor. Uh, and the, the, what's impressive is if, if you ever got shot down, if you had to eject today, it'd probably be a year before they let you fly. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but it would be months. There would be an investigation. investigation. Yeah. Yada yada, paperwork. They'd make sure you didn't take like, pre-workout before you fly, which is something that's actually they, they do they do look at. Um, but for our friend Pigua, just three days later on August thirty first, he's back in the front lines and he's flying and fighting again. And he finds yet again another aviotic two seater. Little does he know, however, 
that the pilot flying the aviotic is Unteroffizier Otto Kandolsky. And Kandolsky is not just some random German pilot. Kandolsky is one of Pigua's former pupils. So when Pigua did his tour of Europe, he was teaching everyone how to fly, including Germans, and he taught Otto Kandolsky how to fly, which is pretty crazy. So now he's going up against one of his former pupils. And the geometry of this fight is somewhat unique because now you have Pigua flying a single-seater, so he does actually want to get behind the aviotics. He's got a forward-firing machine gun. He has a forward-firing machine gun now, finally. But Kandolsky is flying a two-seater with a rear-firing machine gun. So he kind of is actually putting himself in a good position where both of them can shoot down the other person. And as he is running on this attack, uh, unfortunately for Pigua, Kandolsky has a very good gunner. And he's able to hit Pigua. And by all accounts, Pigua is shot himself. So not just the airplane this time, where last time his plane had been riddled by bullets, his engine shot up. In this case, Pigua himself is shot. And he starts bleeding out more or less immediately. He passes out and he crashes in full view of the French lines. And... Uh, we think that he dies more or less immediately, which is a mercy for him. Um, and he's found near the front lines amid a massive broken wood canvas and also a stuffed penguin. He always flew with a stuffed penguin as a mascot, and he had it in his airplane with him. I'm not sure if it's because his name actually sounds like penguin in French. It's very similar. Pigua and penguin. Uh, it is actually something like that in French. It's not too far off. Um, it could also be because when they start flying initially, the airplanes that they flew with had clipped wings, and so they wouldn't get too far off the ground and hurt someone, and they, they also called those penguins. But either way, he's found with his mascot, the penguin, on the French lines, and Kandolsky realizes that he has been a part, at least, of shooting down his former instructor, whom we can imagine he had actually pretty fond memories of because Kandolsky takes off from the German side of the lines. He flies over the French side of the lines and he drops a note that says his adversaries honor the flyer Pigua fallen in combat for his country. And although Pigua died that day in 1916, his legacy, which he didn't even realize he had cemented is that he's, will always be the first fighter race. And I think there's some debate about this just based off the fact that he was flying a lot of two-seaters and we kind of take pride in being single-seat fighter pilots. But I think the big picture on this one is he went out there not to observe. He went out there to shoot down other airplanes and he used every means available to, to his disposal to do that. And I think you give him all the credit in the world. I mean, this guy got shot down. You can imagine how harrowing of an experience it is to have another airplane riddle your airplane with bullets. The engine goes out. You make an emergency landing. And then you go, I'm going back up and doing that in two days, three days, whatever it was. Um, yeah, and regardless of whether or not he was the one actually pulling the trigger on every one of his kills, he was the one putting his aircraft in a position specifically 
to shoot down another aircraft. And I think that's, to me, that's kind of the important part of this. Yeah, it's the mindset. It wasn't just going out to observe and there was a gunner in the backseat who happened to take out a couple of airplanes. He had to see a German airplane, know that, hey, that German airplane can kill me as easily as I can kill it, but I'm going to go attack that airplane. I think it's that mindset of going in for the attack that pushes Pigua over that limit to me to make him the first fighter ace, even though he was flying a two-seater for most of his kills. And so there might be some people who say he wasn't pulling the trigger. They're not going to count it. But first off, there's probably a very few amount of people in the world who can really claim to have done anything greater than what uh, Adolf Pigua did. But it's that mindset for me where he went out looking for the kills, he got the kills, and he did everything in his power to uh, affect that. And so for me, he's the first fighter ace. And although he didn't know it when he died because the, the term ace hadn't really been coined yet, he does know that he's being called Leroy de Sel or the king of the air in France at this time. And so the king of the air, Adolphe Pigua, the world's first fighter ace. And next week, uh, in our next episode, we're going to cross the front lines and we'll take a, a look at one of Germany's first fighter races, Max Immelman. If you liked today's episode, then please like, subscribe, tell your friends. If you didn't like it, lie, tell people you liked it anyways. Um, and join us next week on Fight History. Fight History is hosted by Brian Burke and Mark Silvers. Written by Brian Burke and produced by Mark Silvers. Music is by Cody Martin. Check out our blog at www.fighthistory.com.